This is Jezology It's a real science, honestly Not just a podcast of me talking about me Or, or maybe it is It's Jezology Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Jezology Podcast. My name is Jeremy Johnson and I am your host. In this week's podcast, I sat down with the wonderful Joe Francis, otherwise known as Winter Mountain. Joe is a singer-songwriter from the glorious North Cornwall coast, and we found some time to sit down and talk about his musician's journey in a boiling hot Cornish garden last summer. Joe was also kind enough to play us two amazing acoustic songs, which I'm really excited for you to hear. So without further ado, here's my chat with Winter Mountain. Cheers. Cheers, Jeremy. Joe Francis, Thanks better known much. as Winter Mountain. Welcome Thanks to the Jazzology Podcast here in Cheers. the absolutely boiling Cornish it's country. Scorching, isn't it? <laughs> it's like being in a pressure cooker. Yeah. We've, um, just for those who are watching, we, uh, we decided to come somewhere that wasn't too windy because there's a bit of wind today, but we've realised that out of the wind it's actually roasting hot, so, uh, but anyway, yeah. um, welcome. How are you, sir? I'm great, man. Really good. Yeah. Fabulous. What's, uh, what's been going on lately? What's the, what's the news? Well, I don't know if you heard about this COVID thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, what's that? Tell me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's this thing. Not too much, really. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm slowly getting back into gigging, and it's been really nice. You know, I, I'm someone that's um, kind of enjoyed lockdown to an extent. I don't yeah. know if that's because I managed to stay creative and keep songwriting and um, you know doing live streams and having jam sessions and things to keep things yeah. keep it all going, but. Um, I don't know. I, I thought it was was okay. I think uh, a lot of people in the creative industry who are kind of slightly wrought and highly strung yeah. <laughs> during the normal days of, of what you might consider the rat race. It's um, a lot of us found COVID to be a, a calming time. Indeed. It's Obviously, it wreaked hell elsewhere, but. I think no, it's it's an interesting one with the um, whether you tend towards introversion or extroversion because I know that that's that's quite critical in the creative industries and there's a lot of us sing songwriters who are a little bit of both you know we like to go on stage but actually we're quite happy in our own company mm. and I think the pandemic has really favoured those who actually have a little bit more introversion than they'd, than they'd like to admit <laughs> so yeah so it's been a nice time to create so have you been creating in your in your studio space and yeah well I didn't want to. I didn't want to come out of COVID with nothing to show for it. That was the, mm. that was the kind of singular thought that I had when um, the first lockdown was announced. I, I was convinced we would be back out and, um, and playing and gigging again and everything would be back to normal by the middle of that first summer. Mm. You know, I thought we'd, we'd all be relatively back to normal um, really quickly, but obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> So yeah, I decided that um, I didn't want to come out of this time, this downtime with nothing to show for it. So I've written as much songs, as many songs as I can. Uh, I've got a couple of albums worth on the go. And uh, yeah, I, I've enjoyed it. You know, I've made Amazing. sure I'm busy every day and yeah. that's been important to me. Yeah. 
I think I think that's been the way to cope with this pandemic. And like you said, I think a lot of us went into the pandemic thinking that it would be a fairly short-term thing. Mm. And then those who didn't start saying, well, just in case it is a long-term thing, I'm going to start doing some projects. Yeah. They just have been limping along for the last 12 months. And you can totally understand how that's been devastating for the creative industries. So. Definitely, yeah. There's been this whole spectrum of, um, I guess, of like uh, productivity. Yeah. You know, and some people haven't felt creative at all, and God help them. Yeah. yeah. And some people have have been flying, you know, and it's never been better. I'm somewhere in the middle, I think. You know, yeah. I've definitely had my moments during the lockdown where I've struggled here and there, but the live streams and writing every day that just gave me something to focus on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And. Um, well, good. I'm glad to hear that. It's nice yeah. to hear some po- positive outlook. Yeah, although I don't know how much longer I can continue. Because <laughs> he's only just announced another four-week extension to the yeah. lockdown, and who knows what's going to happen in four weeks' time. Yeah. So, yeah. fingers crossed. Anyway, the gigs are getting booked up, and yeah. I'm looking forward to getting back out on the road. Sure. Yeah. I, f- I feel positive about midsummer. I think midsummer at least will get a few months of um, opening up. Whether that continues into the autumn, we'll have to see. I suppose. Anyway, um, let's. Uh, are you still? You're still writing and producing and, and um, publishing under Winter Mountain. That's right. Yeah. Still? So let's talk a little bit yeah. about Winter Mountain because it's got a very interesting back history. I was I was reading up on it, and <laughs> um, if you'd like to, in your own words, give us a little pricey of, of the history of Winter Mountain, that would be fun. sure. Well, it was started back in maybe 2006. No, 2008. I was out in America, um, traveling around. I had my guitar with me, um, writing songs, performing at open mic nights, that kind of thing. And I, I was in Chicago. I hopped on a train to Memphis and um, met on that train journey. I, I met an Irish singer-songwriter called Martin, um, and we became fast friends. Shared some songs when we got to Memphis and made this vague plan to meet up when we returned to our you know, home countries. And uh, you know, within a few months of getting back, I'd gone to Ireland, played a few songs with Martin, spent some time with his family, and, uh, and the band was, was kind of born out of that, or the duo, the writing partnership was born out of that. Yeah, we, we wrote uh, we wrote about an album's worth of material. Started touring, got some management, um, got signed, got some new management. Went out on the road with a bunch of people, did some great supports, toured Ireland, the UK, Europe for nearly a decade. It was great, mm. really good. And um, now things are uh, now now it's good, man. I've released a, a second album independently. Which I love doing. I was able to explore a slightly heavier sound, lean deeper into a kind of indie Americana sound, which was cool. Um, and uh, I'm now recording two new records: one of folky acoustic ballads, and the other of out-and-out kind of blazing soul-infused R&B, old-school R&B, not like. Yeah. <laughs> Usher and stuff. <laughs> I'd like to see that though, if, if possible. If you could do some uh, some Usher-esque. Yeah, music. I think that's yeah, that's the third <laughs> third project for the next lockdown. Yeah. And so you're releasing, um, or you're planning to release. You've released one album 
through I think it was is it coal um, charcoal records. charcoal records yeah that was the first record yeah um, with Marty and then you mm. um, Marty was... went a separate way and you decided to um, carry on under Winter Mountain I mean you were effectively the lead singer of Winter Mountain and Marty was the harmonizer would that be fair to say well the we first sw- record or? yeah we did we swapped around a fair bit okay. but there are certainly instances of me singing lead in songs mm. um, he wrote some great songs on that first album for sure mm. beautiful and um, it was tough when we stopped working together but mm. it I kind of you know when I reflected on it in the aftermath of him leaving I realised that this was just another part of my journey you know mm. I'd been writing songs and singing mm. them for I don't know 15 years before I met Martin yeah. so to carry on was the only thing I knew how to do yeah. and um, yeah it, it, you know it was it was a tough time but I'm I was able to then release an album of my own stuff utilizing my own voice with my own taste with all my own songwriting I produced it myself I played most of the instruments myself and it was a very liberating thing mm. at the, both at the time and then subsequently because at the time it was fun and it kept me distracted from uh, you know, the breakup of a relationship with most of the, which most of the songs ended up being about. Mm. And, um, but also, uh, looking back, I was able to kind of prove myself. Mm. Winter Mountain, in its first incarnation, had gotten some radio play and had toured with some pretty big names, support, in mm. a supporting role. And um, when I got my second album together, I got booked for a session on Radio 2 mm. and then I got to support Seal and Guy Garvey and mm. a bunch of other big names and mm. it was very validating sure. for me as a writer and as a performer yeah. and um, it's uh, it's been a great journey since then. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like maybe there was an element of that requirement for validation which led to almost the demise of the duo and the, the rising of the, the solo career? Or do you think that's just... I don't know. No, I, I really did love being in the duo, actually. I was cool with that. Um, but, you know, Martin might, Martin felt differently, obviously, and I think it was more to do with the amount of time we were spending on the road and sure. away from home and families. It's a hell of a lifestyle, as you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's not much room for anything else when you're really in the thick of it. Mm. Although the dream is to get signed mm. and to tour, mm. you realise once you get there that it's in fact all consuming sure and yeah. that's great whilst you know for a while yeah. but then after the years go by you think yeah. okay well I'd like to do some other stuff now yeah. and, and maybe you can't for whatever reason yeah. um, but for me I'm a bit of a road dog <laughs> I just love it too much yeah. <laughs> I couldn't stop if I wanted yeah. to you know? you'll carry on forever I think so yeah, yeah no matter what happens I don't know if it's, you know, if, uh, if I'll carry on forever as a solo thing. I have, I, I do perform a lot as a duo and a trio with various people that, mm. you know, and whoever comes along in my life at the time, if they play an instrument, then they generally get roped into a tour yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they're generally not around for long after the tour. I I should... Uh... Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think it's really interesting because... Um, I mean, most of this podcast has been based upon singer-songwriters that I know, so very much a solo sort of affair. And yeah. to hear the perspective of somebody who's 
I mean, sure, it wasn't like a you know, five-piece band or anything, but it was, it was something where it was more than just you. Um, and then to have sort of almost like a 50-50 split in your career of, yeah. of, a, of a project which was sort of certain things you had to compromise on, certain things which were outside of your control, and then to have that experience as solos. It's quite an interesting and intriguing um, point of view. Yeah. And I think, sorry, Karen. Well, I was just going to say certain things about it working together was, were great. Mm. A lot of it was great, and especially in terms of creativity and the the output in general. If you listen to that first album, then the harmonies are great, and there's a lot of really good songs on there too. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, there, there's definitely compromises that need to be made in terms of personality. Mm. Excuse me. <laughs> but, this is what happens when we have. Uh... <laughs> Lovely um, oh, Southwest Ales. I really yeah. appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm loving this. The Colonel, it's called. How are you? How are you feeling on the Colonel? It looks very. It looks nice and uh, cloudy. It's beautiful. It's going down a storm. Excellent. I so, noticed I've ended up with the five percent. <laughs> I don't know what mine is actually. So I actually had one the other day. It was like a lot more than I thought. Eight percent, and I didn't realise, and then suddenly I was away with the fairies. But yeah. Anyway, sorry. Carry on. <laughs> so. Um, what you're saying. Yeah, in terms of personalities, there's a there's a lot to consider and a lot of compromise. But you know, it's even more of a challenge when you you're young, mm. because we were only in our mid twenties when we were dealing with that stuff. And who knows how to deal with that stuff sensitively and and um, effectively and wisely when mm. you're in your mid twenties? Mm. Not many people. Yeah. I suppose it's a little bit like, you know, there's probably great analogies to romantic relationships. You know, we're Absolutely. all sort of try finding our way in our early 20s and you don't really know what, I mean, whether we even do understand these interpersonal relationships that well as we grow older is a, is a question in itself. But, right. I mean, mm. having to do that from a, not only a interpersonal perspective, but a professional perspective. And also it's all wrapped up in this thing that you're passionate about and this thing that you want to succeed enormously complex for young people I mean, I, I'm 35 I've not I've not been in the band um, in the way that you have um, and um, I can only imagine how how difficult that can be you know well it's it's also the best one of the best things yeah you can do so it, yeah. it certainly is difficult and I've realized that it's you've you've got to you've got to make compromises for personalities if you want to if you want to work with people mm. It's a really interesting point of um, of discussion. I mean, there are some people that just get along great, sure. and their duos last forever. But they're not many. Yeah. And there's a reason behind it, and yeah. it can be down to anything. But yeah. I mean, in terms of me and Martin, there was no big falling out or anything. Yeah. Just a gradual thing where we both realised that we've been spending an awful lot of time on the road. Yeah. I was okay with that. He wasn't so much. Mm. Um, but yeah. you know, that's life, and. Uh, it goes on and so does the music. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, as, as a fan of bands and duos and trios myself, sometimes it can be difficult to understand why when you, especially as a solo musician actually, and when I look at, when I look at bands I love and have done very well, and I think to myself, why aren't you still touring? Why aren't you still doing stuff? And it's a frustration almost as a fan to look at those sort of um, groupings of people and, and not understand the choices, but I suppose um, 
you know, looking at your experience with, with Martin and, and hearing your perspective on it, it gives me a little, a deeper understanding of why it can be tricky. And you've yeah. basically got, I mean, you're only a duo, but imagine if you've got five opinions all kind of colliding at once, you know? So. Yeah, man. Well, there are ways of, there are ways of dealing with that. Like certain bands, like U2 and Coldplay, for example, mm. they split all the songwriting royalties equally. Yeah. So they're all earning the same amount of money, and yeah. that's just one less thing that they sure. have to worry about and argue about. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of songwriters and bands that don't do that, mm. and it can get tricky. Political. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> Very political, I can imagine. Yeah, and there's a lot of examples of it out there in rock and roll, and mm. and um, but we're in different times now. I mm. think people are learning to to be cooler and be kinder and mm. let slightly less cutthroat mm. and more understanding in general. Certainly the generation that are coming through now seem mm. to be, you know, really um, digging into this kindness thing. Mm. And it's important to them. And I, I'm sure that the world will be better off for it. Yeah. And that bands and things, you know, maybe they'll have longer careers together mm. as a result of that if bands even survive because <laughs> there aren't many bands around at the moment right yeah, it's yeah. just it's the, the world's changing so much i mean the heyday of the band i mean i was only um listening to or reading a um an article about this the other day and you know the heyday of bands perhaps um um in the, in the days when we were growing up as, as teenagers it was the heyday of the band you know it was it was blur and oasis and that was mainstream and now Great you're times. totally right you know mainstream now is is um, you know crews of people rather than bands and, and individuals with um, electronic backing music and yeah it's it is a very different soundscape and I wonder whether that we're maybe we're going through a phase of repetition maybe the band will make a big comeback once people crave that soul once again or maybe the band yeah. is dead who knows well it's AI it? next yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's an interesting thing to uh, to to discuss, I think, because there's a there's a bunch of different ways that it could go. My greatest fear is that rock music becomes canonized in the in the same way that Shakespeare and Mozart become canonized. Mm. And what I mean by that is, and maybe that's not maybe there's a better phrase for it or term for it, but rock and roll music was always about being down and a bit dirty and doing what you want to do and making a big noise and mm. and 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 kind of at the heart of it maybe a celebration of spirit and life and um, and what I'm worried about is that rock and roll is going to become more and more niche until it's only really performed in, in theatres in front of um, you know students and professors of yeah. of rock and roll history and, and maybe like uh, you know there are already museums to rock and roll yeah and I don't I, I really hope that's not where it ends up yeah you know yeah I really hope that I really hope there are people out there who keep it alive but I'm, yeah. I'm sure taste will change and it'll have to adapt and change maybe it'll happen I don't know but I I actually watched something the truth is I watched something on um, YouTube recently which was a a performance of the Beatles White Album from mm. start to finish uh, and it was performed by a group of professors and academics from Sweden or Norway or somewhere like that 
and they were performing these incredible rock songs like Revolution yeah. and uh, Helter Skelter yeah. and um, everyone in the audience was sat there kind of stroking their beards and <laughs> pontificating about you know whether or not Paul McCartney played the open A yeah. on his bass or maybe he fretted the A on the <laughs> East Room. and that's trying to understand why as opposed to just taking it in I guess yeah and it's becoming this canonized thing and like mm. You know when you go and, she, and you go and see Shakespeare in a theatre. Um, I mean, you've probably done you've probably done a lot of that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, man. But one or uh, two, one or two. Sure. Well, I grew I grew up near Stratford, so of course I had to. Ah, that was the thing. Exactly, Shakespeare land. Yeah, but um, so when you grow up, right, and mm. and when you go to school and you're taught to kind of read Shakespeare which is always weird because it's it's meant to be performed as opposed to read because it's a play obviously yeah. and um, it's it's a bit weird and alienating to kind of try and get your head around the language and what's he talking about and follow the storyline and stuff mm. and then if you do go and watch the plays you're supposed to sit there and kind of uh, and wallow in the genius of this master mm. writer which of course he was mm. But um, if you speak to people who are slightly more learned about these things, they'll tell you that Shakespeare was meant to be enjoyed mm. by kind of rabble, you know, crowds mm. of, of mm. the people, the working class, I guess mm. you would say at the time, who were, yeah. who were likely to call out and make a noise and join in in some format. And there's this, like, chewiness to it. There's mm. this back and forth. And mm. the audience was supposed to be affected. Mm. Mm. And they weren't just supposed to sit there in kind of silent mm. appreciation mm. and study mm. the work of this mm. this guy, who is a genius, absolutely mm. a genius, mm. but, you know, they were supposed to, mm. you know, they were taking part in the, um, the theatrical mosh pits of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really, really interesting example because I think nowadays Shakespeare, you know, it isn't, it isn't for the youth, it's for the um, middle classes who like to think. And I would imagine that Shakespeare, like you, like you say, I mean, probably would never have wanted that to be the case. Yeah. He would wanted it to translate to um, the people, you know, the, the yeah. ma majority, which inevitably are going to be um, less interested in the more academic side of the art, I guess. And, and I, I, I really like your point, actually, about you know rock and roll and about band music as well because i think it, in a way what it requires is the youth who've got something to say that's relevant to the time deciding that rock and roll is going to be their method of of um, protest and their method of, of vocalization yeah and i think at the moment we're very much going through a phase of um you know, grime and trap and um, yeah. and more sort of urban music, if you will, are very much at the forefront of of, um, of that scene. I think it's because young people are choosing that portal to get their messages across. Yeah, absolutely. Not choosing the guitar yeah. anymore, you know. Yeah. And us old fogies, as it were, <laughs> yeah. still trying to say, hey, we've still got stuff to say on the guitar. <laughs> I know, know, man. But, um, I know, right. But I think it's great, actually. I'm, I don't listen to a lot of hip-hop and grime and trap. And stuff but mm. I do think it's awesome yeah that it's still unifying youngsters yeah because there's not a lot that unifies people these days yeah you know there's the left and the right and 
you're polarized as hell, especially on social media. It really seems to magnify mm. the polarization. Mm. And obviously the media have always been responsible for that to a great degree. And now it's social media. And um, I don't know of any force in in the world that can unify people in quite the same way that music can. Movies, movies can do a bit. Mm. Art, you know, there are other types of art that do, but if you can, I don't know, I mean, just a, a, as an example, someone like Springsteen, who's a stadium filler, can mm. get 100,000 people in a, in a stadium. Mm. Um, and a lot of them will be blue collar, working class people but you're going to get a bunch of conservatives in there who mm. remember born to run and mm. all those great singles that he's had dancing in the dark and mm. it just it brings people together cross generations mm. and it's a very unique very unique thing there's a great mm. example of it um on uh, on netflix at the moment it's a um a rolling stones concert called ole 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 okay that takes place down in I think it's Argentina, maybe, or might be Cuba. No, I think it's Cuba, right? And you've got these people um, attending the gig who are who are Stones fans from the 60s mm. when it was banned in Cuba and who yeah. went to jail for listening to the Stones yeah. in the park. Yeah. And you've got them bringing their children to the gigs. Wow. You know, who are they themselves newly converted Stones yeah. fans who are whatever youngsters or teenagers or whatever there's a lot to be said for music man politics can't do it yeah no amount of politics can do it yeah. and there's a lot of causes out there right now that are seemingly for the good mm. like um black lives matter and a bunch of those a bunch mm. of other things that are happening right now and they are they're, they're all great but there's still polarization surrounding mm. them sure right or wrong yeah. Yeah. and it's and only music seems to unify in that yeah. way seems to go it, it kind of soars above all that stuff yeah. Yeah. and I don't know why that is I'm not yeah. saying it's, it's better or more important than those causes those causes are of vital importance and those mm. discussions need to happen and great change need to take place mm. obviously but for some reason it's divisive Mm. in the public arena mm. and music doesn't seem to have that issue so much mm. Mm. and there's not I don't know of much music that has an agenda mm. either you had political songwriters back in the 60s I guess and there have been a few over the years Billy Bragg and a few other people like that come to mind who become, became known as the um, the uh, protest singers of their generation mm. I guess but Outside of that, music just seems to be this unifying force yeah, yeah. for whatever crazy reason. Yeah. I think it's vitally important that musicians remember that. Yeah, we've got a, we're in a very unique position. It's you, a great observation, actually. Yeah, and I, I, I similarly, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think. Well, I've got to think of something that's intelligent to say, and maybe a reason why. But I simply can't. I mean, it, it's it's a great observation that. I mean, you can take Black Lives Matter, for example, and you can say that Black Lives Matter as a political entity is divisive. People tend to be on one side or the other. Um, there doesn't tend to be much nuance or middle ground. But then you've got some incredible artists, you know, like that are relevant at the moment. Um, 
like Stormzy and Dave in the UK, for example, who have who really do fight the Black Lives Matter cause, yeah. but they seem to translate in a way that isn't divisive. Yeah, you know, oh, and, yeah. And can be listened so to, good. but you know, you can have somebody who has completely opposite view and still be a Stormzy fan, despite the fact he's he's demonstrating yeah. these these political views. And, he's so um, good. They're yeah, so it's, good. It's you, I, I wonder if it's. I, I think maybe the. I mean, we're, we're talking about how do you package your message here, mm. right? And I think someone like Stormzy does it brilliantly. He does it in a way that's accessible to everyone and alienating to very few people. Mm. And then there are other artists who are more overtly political. And they will say, well, I'm on this side of the political spectrum and you're either with me and my guys or you're not. Mm. And if you're not, then I don't want to know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, that's something interesting to consider, right? It's like, how do you put across your politics in music without alienating people? Is that... Is that uh, something you, you even want to do I know some people who aren't interested in appealing to the other side yeah yeah so Maybe for it's, them it's not something you know it's not important but but whatever can be done to extend hands you know yeah. across yeah. The, the divide the yeah. gulf is of vital importance yeah and someone like Stormzy does it amazingly well yeah. and he's just a kick-ass performer I think that's what it is I think he's so good mm. He just goes out there and he does his thing and he he's, might be talking about Black Lives Matter. And, but, but you're so affected by him as uh, an amazing songwriter and a front man and an artist and his charisma and his mm. power mm. that um, mm. you get it. And it's, and it's cool and you're accepting of whatever he's offering. Yeah. I think it's great anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, uh, my only um, sadness is that I haven't seen much live music to like. I haven't. I would love to have seen, for example, Stormzy's set at Glastonbury, which I was not able to see. Um, oh, but man, uh, it's yeah. just. I think that you know, it sort of brings us back a little bit to the pandemic and the and the shame of of not having those seminal live moments over the last twelve months. But I'm really craving to go and be in a in a crowd where it's more than just the music you know where you feel Definitely. a vibe and energy and a, and a relevance to it, so. it's just, it yeah and it's only rock and roll that's going to do that for us yeah yeah yeah, totally. yeah yeah and we're 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 in a unique time you know we have been anyway we've been in unique times in terms of like the rock and roll era which i don't know how long that'll last like you said earlier it might already be over but to grow up at a point when We've just had Elvis and the Beatles and all those amazing kind of fire starters, trailblazers, mm. who have given us this incredible body of work, who 99% of people have been inspired by. Mm. And now we're at this point where rock and roll seems to be teetering on the edge of things. Mm. But for the moment, mm. hopefully soon, we'll be able to attend those things again. And mm. I remember Lester Bangs, who's uh, a, a critic for I think he, he might have written for Rolling Stone but he wrote for Cream magazine anyway that was his main thing and um, after Elvis Presley died he wrote an article that said uh, he signed off this article about Elvis saying 
instead of saying goodbye to Elvis, I'm going to say goodbye to you. Because Elvis was, in some cases, the only thing that I'm ever going to agree on with someone else. Mm. He's the king of rock and roll. Mm. And we'll always be unified by that. Mm. But now he's gone. Mm. So I don't know what we've got in common anymore. <laughs> and uh, I think there have been plenty of other examples of that throughout history where you've had people who were just so big and so great and the music's so transcendental that it does unify people. Obviously the Beatles came along after Elvis and then you had huge acts and people like Michael Jackson and stuff and it'd be hard pushed to find someone who wasn't a Michael Jackson fan, certainly in the 80s. Sure. And um, he recognised it even back then. Yeah. That's my point anyway, yeah, yeah. of how unifying it, it can be. And, and how, you know, it's so precious, this yeah. this force that we play with. It's great fun for us as individuals and it's essential. As you know, when you go out and you play and you write your songs and you, yeah. and you band and wherever, it's like an essential spirit that's moving through us and we couldn't put it away, but it's also connected to everyone else yeah. in the world who's got even a hint of interest in creativity and music and who yeah. feels moved by any of that stuff and mm. it's powerful juju <laughs> sure. and bringing that i mean i'd like to bring that point kind of back to home a little bit and ask you whether with your own songwriting with your own music are there certain topics or um elements um which you are sort of um things that are important to you that you feel like you put into your music are there certain things that you feel um, you're you're trying to not necessarily transmit because I don't necessarily me as a songwriter personally I don't think I I never I would never try and transmit a certain message necessarily but mm. I definitely have certain things that I write about which are important to me and for whatever reason I choose songwriting as the vehicle to get those out um, but I wonder whether there's any, any sort of general topics for you I mean obviously love I know it's probably featured, <laughs> as with all of us, and heartbreak naturally. Yeah. But um, yeah, all that stuff, man. All that good stuff. But I like to tell stories in my songs. Generally, my songs, even if they're not overtly, um, literally, spelling narratives out for the listener, mm. they are about very specific things in my life and actually when I when I try and do that other thing of like writing songs um, just for fun or, or you know like for um, I, I don't know maybe someone wants me to write a song for someone's birthday or whatever and I find that stuff pretty challenging mm. because I need to feel like I've got something to say and something to to write about in order for that friction to mm. occur here mm that creates a song of mine. Mm -hmm. um, authenticity, maybe. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of that, yeah. Authenticity yeah. is a big one. Um, I've just, for this next album I've, come, I've got coming out, I've written a, a song about my brother and myself on our road trip through America. Mm. And um, it's called American Honey. And it's, um, it's the story of our travel and the characters that we met and some of the experiences we had along along the way and it's now turned into this um, nine minute kind of Dylan-esque narrative I guess you, you could call it um, 
Americana Dylan-esque narrative thing I, I don't know man it's it's cool but uh, I needed to say these things and speak these words because that was an experience that I had um, I don't feel qualified to speak out about much outside of my life and lifestyle mm. so I don't push it too much mm. going back to the political thing political songs can be a disaster if mm. you can't come at it from um, a place of authenticity sure right yeah absolutely so I mean absolutely. what do I know I'm, yeah. and also you've got to be careful I think like in terms of like writing songs for causes what, why am I going to write songs for certain causes when I don't know how those people feel and also it I don't want to hijack anyone else's cause just to be just to get my stuff out there or yeah. to like or whatever so yeah. no and anyway I think your audience can tell whether you're being authentic or not yeah, yeah. aside from all that other stuff they they come to listen to you as a songwriter tell your story yeah. and uh, and that's what you got to do tell your story you know Speaking of which, yeah. <laughs> I would love for you to play us a, a song if you wouldn't mind. Uh, oh yeah, if you've got a song that uh, um, you had in mind, maybe even a song that you mentioned uh, in your nine-minute narrative. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's not the best we one got for right time now. For that? <laughs> I could sing you a bit of it. Sure. I mean, I'd, I, what I what I love about this podcast is that you know we you know we take it very chill, and if there are certain examples which you you know you'd like to. Um, Show you that's part of the whole thing necessarily, but yeah, absolutely. Just do what feels feels right. Cool, man. I, I'm just uh, I was just thinking about the fact that I'm not sure we've discussed songwriting at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why you play a song and then we discuss songwriting afterwards. Okay. And that's that's the trigger point for me. All right, that's cool. Damn stuff. Okay, I'll give you a little bit of um, American Honey. This is as yet unreleased. Oh, exclusive, okay. I like that. I like yeah, that. you're getting the, uh, the first one. Wake me up when we get there. I need a thousand years of sleep. Fourteen hours of torture at thirty thousand feet. Jet lag suits you, brother We conquer the sky and stars And glide above the burning mud To escape our prison bars American honey Oh, lay, 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 lay American honey Oh, lay, lay Homeless, he screams his mantra Was it once impassioned speech? His fine suit is torn and dirty He needs alcohol to sleep He carries a ragged banner That once read justice and liberty will rise Now it's faded and stained And the letters that remain spell just lies American honey Lay, 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 American honey. Lay, lay. 
rolling through October. I stepped down off of the train. There was music in the southern air and Louisiana rain. We found it so inviting, like something from a dream. I danced with a Spanish girl in a chemical world on the streets of New Orleans, American honey. Oh, lay, 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 American honey. Oh, lay, lay. Time stopped for me, Brandon, when I came across your grave. Something changed within me. And I'll never be the same Oh, I wish that I could have made you smile But dead eyes always blue They built your gallows, Tina But they could not tie a noose American honey Oh, lay, 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 lay American honey Oh, lay, lay by the time I reached the East Coast, I cannot believe my eyes. Well, the plane left the runway, and the morning sun did rise to illuminate the country that had brought me to my knees. Oh, I might go back there one day if the juice is worth a squeeze. American honey. Lay, 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 American honey. Oh, lay, lay. Now the man in highest office, he's a highwayman in the dark. He sticks a chocolate in your mouth and he aims a pistol at your heart. Dirty American sun, cutting through dirty American trees. And dirty American money for dirty American deeds. American honey. Oh, lay, 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 lay. American honey. Oh, lay, lay. American honey. Oh, lay, 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 lay. American honey. Amazing. Amazing. I was oh, Thanks dude. Great. That's a bit of it anyway. <laughs> That's fab. And I yeah, I totally see your reference to narrative Dylan as well. I mean it, it felt yeah. like to me it was very much a um, um, almost like a lullaby love letter to America. I guess that America for you is quite seminal in your history, is quite important to you and maybe uh, holds, yeah, holds a kind place in your heart. Yeah, big time. I've been there a few times and um, I always try and spend a good few months there when I go. Mm. And uh, I love it, you know, and I, th I actually, the last time I was out there, I thought I might write a whole album about being in America. Mm. And um, I ended up condensing everything into one song, <laughs> and I was like, "Damn it! I've got to, I've got to write nine more tracks." <laughs> but that's how it came out, anyway. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, man. Oh, cheers. Amazing. No, I, I really liked it. I look forward to hearing that um, 
recorded. I think honestly, you could just do an acoustic version of it, and I'd be a happy sailor. Listen to that. I appreciate that, bro. There's something yeah. about the sort of, especially storyboards, you know, that 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 tie you from verse to verse, mm. um, and you know, give you enough to want you to come back the next verse, and then give you something else, and that's. There's a way that you write songs, which I, when I was listening to your music before as well, which is, it's it's very deliberate in that way that it's sort of, I don't know whether you intend it to be or whether it's just a natural thing, but it sort of teases you in with enough, but not too much. You know, okay, in, in yeah. And like each verse linking to the next, it's kind of cool. Well, I mean, there's possibly, possibly that's, a, that's something I do. I, I, I don't know, actually. In terms of writing, I don't really know how it all happens. Mm. I don't know anyone that does, and those people that do, or that try and uh, dissect it, it, it was described once as pulling the wings off a fairy, I think someone mm. said. It's like, mm. how does this thing work? And then it's gone, the thing, mm. the spirit's mm. left it, mm. and it, it doesn't necessarily, the, the, the sum doesn't always, uh, the parts don't always equate the sum, rather. And, Mm. Um, I don't. I don't know how it happens. I grew up listening to the Beatles, Dylan, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, mm. Annie Lennox, Springsteen, well, James Taylor, you can all that hear stuff. Those influences, for sure. I mean, yeah. Perhaps, perhaps there's, there's an element of that. Is that yeah. ultimately? I mean, what was it? I think it was Oscar Wilde that said something about the fact that we never create anything original. Yeah, it's just a yeah. culmination of what we've seen and heard before. I agree with that. And. Um, and I think maybe, you know, obviously you're, you have a love for Americana and then that definitely translates in your music. And, yeah. And I guess the, the way that you want to tell a story is related to how you've heard stories told before. So. It's true. My favourite band of all time, however, are the Beatles. Mm. And then followed by the Police, who mm. are essentially two English bands. Yeah. But I don't know, man. I've never been able to create an English sound. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, an English sound can be disastrous. Yeah. Because it can be a bit like um, when I'm cleaning windows or something. Yeah, yeah, it can yeah, be yeah. a little bit like... I mean, I love that. He, he was great, that ukulele dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not having a go at him for any, you know, fans of George Fornby who are watching. <laughs> but um, I do... I, I, there's just something... I, I don't know, man. I, I, I wonder if it's coming from Cornwall. Mm. You know, there's there's not necessarily many hard edges in life when you come from uh, a little village on the north coast of Cornwall. Mm. Mm. It's it's all right. There's not much mm. to rail against, or there hasn't been since they closed the mines like 150 years <laughs> ago. <laughs> Maybe back then we would have got some great punk music out of yeah. Cornwall. But it's difficult. You know, what are you going to rail against? The girls in bikinis and the. Uh, yeah ice cream sellers on the beach <laughs> and the sunshine and the but saying that like I, that's i was only kidding right by the way but you go to central cornwall and there is a band which is a uh, very poor poverty stricken mm. area you sure. know so i'm not making light of mm. that situation or mm. ignoring it or whatever but i was just fortunate enough to be born on the coast and mm. um, you grow up feeling like life's okay you know? yeah yeah. For better or for worse. Well, there is a great um, lineage of uh, Southwest male, in particular, interestingly enough, um, narrative singer-songwriters. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that you know there's singer-songwritery in general is 
is very much a male-dominated domain, so it's not necessarily that that's relevant in Cornwall and Devon, but you've got some um, um, uh, incredible and relevant musicians from John Smith and Seth Lakeman, who I know you've, you've worked with um, uh, a few times before, um, Ben mm. Howards of the, the Universe, mm. himself, of course. Albert Jones, who um, I have to mention because he's been on the podcast as well. <laughs> yeah, of course. And is, yeah. of course, your partner in Astral Fox. Uh, yeah, and, Bertie. Uh, your, yeah. The Badger. Yeah. <laughs> so, he's brave, um, man, yeah. Yeah, so uh, th- maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's something about growing up in this wild, you know, um, wild feral domain of, of yeah, the Southwest, nice. which. Uh, which gets the creative and narrative juices flowing, who knows? Well, I think there is a bit of that, and then it's also how it's presented to mm. your wider audience. And if you come from a place where it is sunshine and beautiful coastal vistas and sweeping valleys and, and you know, rolling hills and stuff, mm. it's, you're gonna write, naturally you're gonna write stuff that kind of reflects that vibe. And I think, uh, Musically, historically speaking, California, more so than America, is it? The California sound has, has been softer and rounder and mm. more genteel. Mm. Um, and I don't know that I've ever tried to copy anyone from that part of the world, but I do recognize a similarity in the stuff I create to what they create out there sure. or have created in the past. You know, mm. obviously, California is the place that gave us Guns N' Roses mm. and. Um, NWA as, as well as <laughs> the birds and yeah. James Taylor and that kind of yeah. sound so yeah. like what can you say but uh, I, I think it reflects the lifestyle down here yeah. maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong but I, maybe maybe it does yeah. I don't know yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, live the live game and I know that you know you've played dare I say thousands of shows now um and obviously Probably, yeah. for you, um, playing live is an important part of the musical journey. Yeah. And um, I've, doing my little bits of research, you're, you're very well regarded from a live perspective, the energy you bring to an audience and that okay. je ne sais quoi of, uh, <laughs> of uh, playing live. But I wondered how you saw the live I knew you'd spent time in France, but I didn't realize <laughs> I'm basically fluent. You'd ingratiate <laughs> yourself so well into their culture. <laughs> exactly. Well, for all the French audience, uh, that's, that's what that was for. Just so they feel a little bit at home. Um, but um, yeah, I just wonder how you felt about it and how, whether you've been on a sort of personal journey with the live game, whether you, you like me, for example, when in the early days, Very were much terrified, like you, of, terrified of playing live and then, you, or maybe you felt comfortable from the beginning. Or... Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, I always kind of liked it. I was in a band back at um, when I was at um, when I was in uh, secondary school, mm. and we we started performing from the age of twelve or thirteen or something for our school assemblies. Teachers would get us up <laughs> to do that <laughs> end of uh, end of year. That was the right passage. The end of year assembly, wasn't it? I, yeah. I did one one end of year assembly in a band. <laughs> <laughs> How'd it go? Um, I think we played. Um, what did we play? Played an Ash song. If you remember Ash from back yeah. in the day, and I think we played. Um, did we play Teenage Dirtbag? Possibly. Gold. <laughs> no. Yeah, man. 
we played a lot of old school stuff me and my friends we were regressive as hell and we played a lot of Beatles songs and kink songs and things like that. Just too cool for school, maybe. I don't know, man. I always felt like we were the opposite because we we had bands in our school that were playing playing groups who were really cutting edge at the time. Yeah. So they were playing songs by uh, you know Nirvana and Sublime. Do you remember Sublime? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. awesome band. We never played anything like that. We were always doing this old school stuff, and the teachers loved it. Yeah. And uh, it was cool, you know. It was was what it was. And yeah. We enjoyed it, um, but uh, yeah, I've always wished that I'd listened to slightly cooler music growing up because <laughs> I was so obsessed with the 60s mm. and 70s that I kind of missed grunge altogether. Mm. People would say to me, you got to check out grunge mm. and check out Nirvana and Pearl Jam mm. and Pixies mm. and stuff, mm. Smashing Pumpkins, and I'd just go like, mm. I don't know, I'm still into the birds and Joni Mitchell here. Yeah. And, uh, and now when I listen to Pearl Jam and Nirvana and stuff, I'm just blown away and I mm. wish that I was more into them at the mm. time. Mm. And I'm glad I got Britpop a bit more. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, a lot of people are snobby about Oasis, for example, mm. but I fucking love Oasis, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they're great. I'm with you. I'm I've seen them, you. I saw them twice and they were unbelievable. Mm. They were so good. And their songs are killer. Mm. Whatever. I, anyone who's got anything disparaging to say about Oasis, I, I kind of get it, you know? It, it tends to be wrapped up in the personalities of the brothers, right? I mean, if you don't yeah. like Oasis because you don't like the behavior of usually Noel Gallagher. <laughs> or oh, yeah, sorry, Liam Gallagher. Liam Gallagher. Usually Liam yeah, Gallagher, but, I should say. You know, he's often misunderstood. And the guy, yeah, you know, he was from a council estate. He had nothing else. He had no other prospect in mm. his life. Mm. And he found rock and roll. And he was mm. just so authentic mm. as a word you, you brought up earlier yeah. and true to himself mm. and that's what I love about him he was just himself and and no one is themselves these days yeah. no one is themselves everyone's yeah. too, too concerned worried. about how they're yeah. presenting themselves yeah. and whether it's you know whether it's going to appeal to a big enough audience yeah. and what if I alienate these people yeah. by saying something wrong and this kind of thing and it's yeah. like the Gallagher's with the, like the last bastion of people who did not give a fuck yeah. about yeah. anything other than what they were doing yeah. and they were they knew they were great and they yeah. were great man you don't sell out Nebworth multiple nights in a row yeah. if you're not doing something special yeah flying in by helicopter those guys had a, had a, had a dial yeah, but I think it is is that you know if you um, if you don't have the courage to uh, be yourself and um, speak about your message. Then, I mean, I, I don't know whether you you're, you'll ever. I, I just think with, with the with the seminal bands, if you look at any seminal band, they had a a message. You know, they they related yeah. to a certain group of people, mm-hmm. and that's why they were great. And I think the fear of relating to a specific group of people holds back so many. All the wrong people. All the wrong people. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And it takes a lot now to stick your head above the parapet. Back then in the 90s, it would have been, you know, certain members of the music press that would have Mm. been out to get you. Mm. Nowadays, it's like you were saying earlier, when you turn up to a gig and people are pleased to see you. Mm. They want Mm. you to do well. Mm. Yes, the musician's here. Mm. Things are going to get great from here on in. And you go, yeah. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully I can uh, <laughs> I can do that for you. Yeah. Have you? I mean, I, I've um, my experience of playing with a band is that there's something about the camaraderie and the the shared experience which does make playing live easier. Mm-hmm. Do you find p- 
playing, or at least I'm sure you do now because obviously you've done it so much, but maybe in the early days of playing solo, was it a different experience for you? Was it more intense Absolutely. and scary thing? Yeah, man, it, w it was a scary thing. Um, I, did, I didn't know, let me think about this for a second, because I've always had this, bit of, this duality in my career, as, mm. as it were, you know. I've always played solo acoustic covers gigs mm. in bars and clubs and pubs of Cornwall mm. for the tourists. Mm. I mean, that was, when we were growing up, that was the circuit you'd get mm. onto mm. to learn your trade. And you just, you keep doing that and you know that there's always gonna be those gigs there over mm. summer. Mm. So you keep returning and you keep a hand in. So I was well practiced at playing mm. solo gigs in front of rooms, uh, front of rooms full, full of people. But, um, when it came to the original thing, it was a completely different animal. Mm. One of the first gigs that I did after I decided to go solo with Winter Mountain was supporting Guy Garvey and mm. Lusty Glaze. Yeah. So there was a few thousand people down there and it was a pretty big production and a big, big show for me. And I had to play for three quarters of an hour, I think it was, and I didn't, I didn't really know what I had yeah. that people might want to see, you know. Yeah. So I was a little bit shy, and I just rattled off my songs and hoped yeah. they were good enough. And it took me a while to develop a style, mm. as it were, mm. you know, and, and feel comfortable in front of a crowd yeah. to get to a point where I could tell jokes and, yeah. you know, I didn't need Not to take rely on them. too seriously as well, I suppose. Totally. Thing, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to have humour in there and. Especially when you're playing melancholic folk like we do. <laughs> so <laughs> I think you have to throw the odd joke in there, otherwise it becomes a very, a very sort of close environment potentially. Big time, man. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're Radiohead or someone like that, or Bonnevere. Well, if you're enormous, I'd love to yeah. be able to create that yeah. kind of atmosphere. Yeah. But yeah. also, my sense of humour doesn't really allow for that kind of atmosphere. No. Because I'd rather tell a story or tell a joke yeah. that's slightly absurd and. Yeah might get a laugh and yeah. any um, gl gloomy intimate romantic atmosphere is going to be mm. burst a mm. little bit by mm. by those kind of things but yeah whatever that's just me and yeah me doing what I do yeah yeah for sure like you know there are I suppose there's, there's going to be those musicians I mean Ben Howard also springs to mind he's not he's not the chattiest you know but he does create this kind of like soundscape and this intensity and so I oh, suppose it's, it's kind yeah. of usually one or the other right either you're a, you're a bit of a chatty Cathy and that's what people come to see or you go down the intensity route and go you know full bore and yeah. hope that it's enough to keep people entertained. Well, ben he's a master of it mm. so yeah I've always been more inclined to talk to the audience and tell stories I think. Likewise, yeah. Likewise. yeah I enjoy that aspect of it and, um, you know, going back to Cornwall, playing around these places, you, you've got to do a bit of entertaining, mm. else people switch off. And, yeah, you know, totally. Yeah, yeah. Th so there is a, a bit of that, you know. But it's, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. I love playing live, you know. It's, yeah. it's um, probably the best part of doing this, I'd say. Yeah. I think me as a songwriter as well as, um, it's the communication. I think after many gigs and many experiences, I, I realized that for me, it's what I love about 
this job is the communication with people. And I think if you, if I wasn't the kind of person who, um, I mean, maybe maybe that's it. But it, I think if I if I was only going up on stage and playing my music, sure, there's an element of communication, but there's so many facets of communication you miss by not talking and engaging and joking with your audience. Yeah. So for me, it's really important. Yeah, and also an audience can smell your fear and your, you know, anxiety. Yeah, yeah. and that's uncomfortable for them as well. It I think. doesn't make. Yeah. yeah, it's not good for them. Yeah. So you've got to find a way of masking that, at the very least, if not uh, besting it. Mm, for sure. One of one of. Uh, so, shortly after that, Guy Garvey support, I went up and did a gig supporting Cara Dillon, the folk yeah. folk yeah. singer, and yeah. um, that was at. Um, Union Chapel in mm. London, which is quite a prestigious Amazing. venue. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't have a solo act at mm. that time. Yeah, I was just, um, you know, I just rocked up and I, I thought, well, what do I do? I just play, I just play my songs yeah. and hope people like it. And and I don't know how well I succeeded at that mm. at that gig for most mm. of that show. Mm. I think it was unfortunate timing. I sh- had it been a year later, I would have had my shit together, but um, at that particular time, I was slightly frozen. Mm. I wasn't as loose as I can be now. Mm. wasn't as happy on that on that stage by myself. And um, I feel like it showed. Mm. So it's taken me a while to get that together. For sure. But it, that's okay. You know, that's just part, part of the process, right? The process, man. I think it was, um, I can't remember who said it, but something that's always rung true with me is, um, I think it was Hugh Laurie, actually. Hugh Laurie once said, um, yeah. uh, he doesn't think anybody's really ready ever to do anything. It's just mm. a case of whether you go and do it or not. You know, mm-hmm. and you learn, your, you learn your, your craft from that. And I kind of buy that, you know, if we wait until we're ready to do something, then often we miss the opportunity. So, it's true, man. You know, you can never be perfect. And I no. Think that's, uh, you know, it's just part of the philosophy of, of doing what we do, I guess. But, Absolutely. Um, but I would, um, I'd love to hear another song, if you wouldn't mind. If you'd uh, yeah. be up for playing us another one, that'd be love great. Um, and uh, if you if you have a little story behind this song, that would also be <laughs> very appreciated. What to say about this song? It's called "I'm Stronger When You Hold Me," and I wrote it my mum's coal shed (laughs) (laughs) after a gig so I'd come home from a gig I didn't feel like going to bed I felt compelled to write a song but I couldn't play any music in the house because everyone else was in bed asleep of course so I took it out to the bottom of the garden and sat in the coal shed and by the light of my phone I I wrote the song very For a girl. Uh... Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> You're painting a great picture right now. Yeah. I wrote it for. Uh, I like to say I wrote it for a girl I haven't met yet. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Just get the
something about you, Angel The way you move like smoke across the floor And I'll confess there is no memory in my head That I have ever wanted more Oh, it's like counting stars that I don't deserve to see that I know for sure I'm stronger when you hold me Oh, life is what it should be When I am in your arms Stronger when you hold me Oh, life is what it should be When I am in your arms And I'll dream about the imperfections I discover on your skin And how I am the lucky one for sure Cause when I knocked upon your door you took me in Oh yes you did And how our weird little worlds collide with such a dim That it shook me to the very about you angel you float like a butterfly towards a flame oh and to try and find the words to paint your beauty would surely be in vain oh yes it would am I losing my touch give it all or give it up it's what you told me Taking it to heart I'm stronger when you hold me Hey, life is what it should be When I am in your arms Stronger when you hold me Oh, life is what it should be When I am in your arms I'm stronger when you hold me Amazing. Thanks, dude. And I can sincerely say I hope you meet that woman one day. She'll be a lucky girl. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Jury's out. <laughs> Cheers. No, amazing. Amazing. Appreciate it. Yeah, really cool. And uh, is that on uh, an album that's already released? Yeah, that's on the first album, Winter Mountain. Okay. Amazing. So, yeah. 
self-titled. Yeah. So as we were we were talking about earlier, you've you produced one one album. I think it's back in 2013. Was it like Winter Mountain? Was that 2013? Yes, that's yeah, that's right. Yeah, and first um, album, yeah. and the second album, which was I swear I I swear flew. I flew. Yeah, um, back in sixteen seventeen time. Yes, around there. I guess. And then you've had, you've released a couple of things since, like a like live album and a, and a single. I think I saw recently. Yeah, a couple of songs, a couple of things here and there. But I'm gearing up for uh, album number three. Amazing. Well, it could be album or number three and three four. And four yeah. yeah. Double, I've, double back. Yeah, man. I, right at this moment, I've got to figure it out because I've got these, I've got like a load of ballads and acoustic, folky type, haunting, ethereal songs. Mm. And then I've also been working on some stuff which is more like um, early Van Morrison, like mm. heavy soul. Yeah. Big choruses, horn parts. Yeah. You know all that stuff, and I—I yeah. I don't know if they'll work on the same album. So yeah. it could be that I'm writing two separate records. Yeah. Either way, it's good. It's—it yeah. feels good to be proactive and productive. And is yeah. that what the future holds? The next sort of twelve months or so is—is is bringing that to fruition? Yeah, it'll be getting those songs out. I've got—I've um, got about a, a, a dozen or so festivals and gigs mm. and things coming up mm. towards the end of this year mm. that I'll be out doing and mm. some of them are solo some of them are with my band mm -hmm. some of them are with uh, Sam my guitar player mm -hmm. and uh, and then after that it'll be focusing on bringing out the live mm. the live stuff amazing yeah man nice Love oh, well um, that's good I mean I, I can't wait to not only hear the new stuff on album but I mean I'd love to come to a show at some point so I, I'll, I'll check out your your uh, your website. I know that you've got a website with your with your tour dates on. Yes, so Winter Mountain. Your tour dates. They it's, can. Yeah, it's wintermountain.co.uk winter forward slash tour. Yeah. <laughs> if you want, if you specifically want to find the live dates, you can also find them on um, Instagram, which is at Winter Mountain. Yeah. I think Twitter is at Winter underscore Mountain. Okay. And Facebook at Winter Mountain. Yeah, you find uh, all the info up there. Yeah. But I suppose it's all accessible through your website, right? So. Exactly, yeah. Cool. And um, the tour, is that going to be nationwide or are we going yeah, to specifically I mean, southwest at the moment still? Or? Well, the yeah, the dates skew heavily <laughs> southwest. Yes, exactly. I'd like to get a few more in, but um, the, the ones that I'm doing this year have been rescheduled mm. since 2000, uh, well, 20, I guess. Mm. They, they were supposed to be performed in 2020, so... Mm. Hopefully they'll still go ahead. Um, and uh, I think I'm playing London, Milton Keynes, Sheffield, um, one in Gloucester, Fine. a few in the Southwest, yeah. that kind of thing. So a little bit of a run of gigs, yeah. but the uh, I, I guess the, the true touring, you know, like getting up into Scotland and yeah. going further afield and all that, that probably won't be till next year now. Sure. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're all hoping that the pandemic eases kindly for musicians and venues alike. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm interested to see how the venues have coped once everything comes back to normal and how many are still left. But uh, I guess uh, any time will tell. But, uh, that's pretty much the only thing to say is thank you so much for joining me today on the uh, Jazzology podcast. Apologies for the name, <laughs> what, what I ended up with. Yeah, <laughs> it actually started off as a joke, but that's, that's another story. One um, letter. 
one letter s- slipped and yeah. you're onto a whole other <laughs> exactly. online world of exactly yeah yeah, yeah. God knows. yeah. <laughs> no mate, it's great thanks for having me man i love you're it. most welcome it's been a pleasure chatting to you thank you so much for playing the songs and um yeah, if anyone wants to find out more about Joe Francis, head to wintermountain.co.uk. Co.uk. Yeah. Lovely. Cheers, Joe. Thanks, buddy. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Jazzology with my very special guest, Winter Mountain. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to help us grow the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, like, share and if you're over on Apple Podcasts give us a review. More information on my very special guest Winter Mountain can be found at wintermountain.co.uk. As always thanks for tuning in and see you on the next podcast.